0: we are going to be back in Revelation 21 where we started last week. And last week uh, we got into this study on the new heaven and the new earth. What is the eternal paradise that we are going to live in for all eternity going to look like? And just to recap from last time, to bring you up to speed if you weren't here We're looking at Revelation 21 for a couple reasons. The first is to correct any wrong thinking that we might have regarding our eternal state, where we will live for all eternity. And one of the main reasons that we often think wrongly about heaven, we have wrong ideas about heaven, and I mentioned this last week, was this idea of Platonic philosophy being married with Christianity. Christianity having a strong distinction between the physical world and the spiritual world, so much so that the view that the spiritual existence is a superior existence, and we're trying to get out of our bodies into that superior existence in heaven. And we talked about how that is really a marrying of alien philosophy that is not biblical. Just this week, I was listening to uh, Christian radio, I don't think I've listened to Christian radio for the entire three years I was gone because I have an MP3 player in the, the vehicle there. But since I've been back here, I'm borrowing a vehicle that doesn't have that. And so I'm listening to the radio, unfortunately. And if you listen to Christian radio as far as music goes, you really should stop. It is terrible. It is awful. I'll continue to listen to it for sermon fodder, but you don't listen to it. <laughs> don't listen to it. I heard a song just this week from Mercy Me talking about how looking forward to the day when flesh and bone no longer separate us from God. It no longer stands between us and God. And that's, that's exactly what I was talking about last week, this platonic thinking that has crept into Christianity. So that was one reason we have the wrong idea about heaven. The other reason we talked about having the wrong idea about heaven is just the cultural misconceptions. We're constantly inundated from a young age. Pictures of effeminate angels sitting on top of clouds, playing harps. Peter sitting at a desk in front of the gates of heaven. So we have a misconception because we've been inundated with images from a young age about what our culture thinks heaven looks like. And so, we are looking at Revelation 21 just to get a clear picture of what the eternal state is going to look like, where we're going to live for all eternity, so we can put aside these false notions of what heaven will be like. And so, if you're not there already, turn to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. I'm going to read... The first eight verses, and then I'm going to summarize the points we hit last week and go over what we're going to do this week. So Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. This is John the Apostle just writing down what he was commanded by an angel to write down what he saw. This is what he writes. At the end of the age, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, which is the second death. So last week we covered the first three verses in this section. We are going to finish this section today. The first three verses we covered last time. Just to just to remind you of those, verse one was the consummation of the new heaven and new earth. John saw it completed, and he told us one thing about it, and that that was that it was new. That is superior in kind and quality to the old, making the old obsolete. Just as the new covenant is superior in kind and quality to the old, making the old obsolete and passing away. We talked about the need to steward our time and resources well in light of the fact that this world is passing away. And we do not, we do not just throw this earth away and we do not, not care about it at all because It is passing away, but we steward it well. We steward our time and energy well concerning this earth, but we do not worship it. We do not give our lives to it. Verse 2 was point to the crown jewel of the new heaven and new earth. John sees this beautiful, magnificent city coming down out of heaven, and he summarizes by saying it looks like a bride on her wedding day adorned or her husband coming down out of heaven, the most beautiful city you have ever seen. And yet, this conversation is interrupted by a voice from the throne proclaiming what is the best part about heaven. And that was in point three, the climax of the new heaven and the new earth. The absolute best part about heaven is that God is going to be with us. In verse three, it says three times, with us, with us, with us. That is the best part about heaven is that God is going to be with us. We looked last week at John 17, 3, where Jesus said, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The essence of eternal life is that God is with us. Us. This phrase, know, that we may know God, the essence of eternal life, is a relational term. It's not just a matter of fact. The scripture uses this word all the time to refer to an intimate knowledge of someone. This word, you're familiar with it, talking about a husband and a wife knowing one another and begetting children. It's an intimate knowledge. And so, the essence of eternal life is that we will know God intimately. And eternal life is not just about a quantity of days, it's about a quality of days. Those who go to hell for all eternity have the same number of days. So, eternal life is about quality, not quantity. And this quality is in relation to the fact that we are going to know the Father and the Son intimately. And this directly overflows into what we're talking about this week. So those were the first three points that we covered last week. The consummation of the new heaven and the new earth, the crown jewel of the new heaven and the new earth, the climax of the new heaven and the new earth. And now this week we're in verse 4, Point number four, the contrast of the new heaven and the new earth. What is going to look different about the new heaven and the new earth from this one? So let me reread verse four, and we'll go from there. Verse four, the contrast of the new heaven and the new earth. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. As I mentioned, this is a direct continuation of what we just talked about. You might say that this is a negative description of what it means that God is going to dwell with us. And the first thing that God is going to do as he dwells with us is wipe away every tear. But notice, John wants to keep that in the forefront of our minds, that this is directly connected to the fact that God is with us, because at the beginning of verse 4, he says, He will wipe away every tear. Many people, when they think of heaven, this, these verses is are what, what they think of. That there's going to be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. That's what they're looking forward to in heaven. But here we have to see that John emphasizes right at the beginning of this that it is because he does it. He is there with us. God is there with us to wipe away every tear from our eyes. So we have to see these as very intricately knit together That without God there, this is not there. Without God, these things could not happen. The first thing this verse tells us, the first of the negative aspects or the contrasts, the negative description is that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That verse, that word there for wipe away, uh, the basic meaning of it refers to making something disappear by wiping. It can refer to removing something so as to leave no stain of evidence, no trace that there was anything there before. I heard a story once of a high school boy who had his friends over and. You know, as high school boys are always hungry, they were hungry, and so they went to get something out of the fridge, and like locusts, they pretty much devour everything in the kitchen. If you have high school boys, you know that. They eat everything, and this boy had his friends over, and as they were eating, they found a a cluster of grapes in the fridge, and as they were eating this cluster of grapes, they thought it would be a good idea to start throwing them at each other and having a grape fight. Well, once they ran out of grapes that were not squished, they realized that they had better clean up their mess before their mother came home and found it. And so they tried their best to clean up the mess. They tried to look everywhere in every corner and wipe up every stain. And yet, as you might imagine... High school boys aren't too attentive to detail, and their mother figured out, she put the pieces together and figured out what they had done. This wiping here, you might say, is a mom-quality wiping. (laughs) There is no stain left behind. There is no evidence left behind of what was there. This word is often used in Scripture to refer to our sins being taken from us. In Colossians 2, 13 and 14, Paul says, And you who are dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by, and here's that word, wiping away, by canceling the record of debts that stood against us with its legal demand. Our sins and our, the debt that was against us was canceled. It was wiped away. In Acts 3.19, it says, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. It is a complete wiping away and annihilation of the existence of any record of sin against us. And here we see that God, as we are in His presence for all eternity, He is going to wipe every single time tear from our eyes every single remnant of sin from our eyes there will be no more crying over our sin instead we will be comforted for it beloved do you weep over your sin think of the beatitudes blessed are those who mourn and weep over their sin for they will be comforted I mean, even just these last couple weeks as I've been studying this and God has revealed pride the pride that was in my heart, wept over some of these verses as I was convicted of my own sin. Do you, are you grieved over your sin? Do you weep over your sin in this life? I pray you do. One day God is going to wipe every tear from your eyes. We will never cry again over our sin. He will remove our sin from us entirely and there will be no more weeping over our sin. As the Beatitudes state, instead we will receive comfort. comfort. So God is going to remove every tear from our eyes as we dwell with him. He goes on and he says, death will be no more And essentially, this is the same thing as saying we will have eternal life. And yet it's put in the negative because all we know is a life filled with death. That's all we know. And so let's put in the negative here just for us to wrap our minds around the idea of eternal life. A life with no more death. Can you imagine that? I mean, there's nothing worse than getting one of those phone calls that someone you love has perished or has very little time to live. There is nothing more grievous. But in heaven, we never have to receive one of those phone calls. We never have to receive that tormenting news. And even though we don't mourn as the world does, it is painful when we lose people in this life. Remember one of those times in your, in your mind, go back to that point and just remember, you will never feel that again in the new heaven and the new earth. Never again. We will never have to say goodbye to anyone and the new earth, and the eternal state. He goes on and he says, neither mourning, there will be no more mourning. The stain of sin, the stain of death, and the curse of this life will be no more we will never mourn death or sin again. And just to remind you, these joyous truths are not separate from the fact that God will be there. We can look forward to this. We ought to read these passages and rejoice and look forward to this, but we should never separate it from the fact that God is there with us. That is always the chief End, that God is there with us. But these are simply negative descriptions of that positive assertion that God will be there with us. He goes on and he says, nor crying. There won't be any more crying there. And at least when I see this word of crying, I don't think this is necessarily the best translation just for how I take that word to mean. When I see that word in Scripture, I think of like a kid crying. But that's not the sense of this word here. This word has more of the idea of shouting or wailing. It's often used to translate people crying out to God in prayer, like, Lord, save me. This is not a cry of tears. This is a cry of desperation a call for help and deliverance from trials in this life. In heaven, in the eternal state, there will be no need to cry out to God for deliverance from anything. There will be no enemies. There will be no trials to call out to God for help from. We will live where there is perfect safety, perfect peace, and we will never have to cry out to God for help. Do these verses mean that we will not cry at all or weep at all? And I don't think, I think that would be an overly literal or a wooden literal way to take it, that we're never going to have tears in our eyes whatsoever, or we're never going to cry whatsoever, because of the negative uh, things in this list. All of this has to do with the stain of sin and the curse. I think in heaven, our eyes still may be able to fill with tears as we are filled with joy and overwhelmed with the emotions that we feel as we stand before God. God. Have any of you guys ever seen those videos on Facebook of a baby who was born deaf and they're at the doctor's office and they've got the implants put in and they're ready to turn them on and they tell the mom, you, when we turn them on, we want you to speak. You'd be the first voice that the baby hears. And so they turn it on and the mother speaks and immediately the baby's eyes just well up with tears at the beauty of sound for the first time. They hear their mother's voice and they begin to weep because they're so full of the emotions that that has caused. And I think, beloved, that will be the same case for us in heaven as we stand before our Father and the Son on the throne that we will be so filled with emotion that we will be overwhelmed by it at His beauty, at His kindness for what He has done for us. At least I think that is a possibility. So I don't think these verses mean we won't have any more tears in our eyes whatsoever. But he goes on to say, nor pain any more. And it's a little stronger in the original. In the original, there's a double negative here. And in the English, when we have a double negative, it makes a positive. But in many other languages, a double negative just emphasizes the negative aspect And here, he essentially says, nor pain, there will not be any more. There's not going to be any more pain, and he overemphasizes that here in this text. This word for pain is used in Revelation 16.10 of those who are in anguish, so much pain that they're chewing their own tongues, they're gnawing their own tongues in pain because God is judging them. There will no longer be any pain in the eternal state. We never have to worry about undergoing any discipline for sin. We never have to undergo any punishment. There will no longer be any anguish over the sin and death and the pain that it causes. And once again, I don't think that this means our... Pain receptors will not work. I think we will enter into the eternal state and we'll still be able to feel things. Adam and Eve had nerve endings just like we do. But we will not be overwhelmed. We will never be in anguish. We will never use the phrase, I am in pain. And yet we still will be able to feel. What these verses... Just, just kind of as a footnote, what these verses are not indicating. Some people have taken these verses and they have come up with the implication that if, if we are going to live for all eternity in bliss, in enjoyment, in happiness, then we must not be able to remember anything from this life. And the logic is this. If we're going to live eternally, happy in heaven, how could we do so if we remember people on this earth that we know are in hell? How are we going to live for all eternity happy when we know people are in hell? And these, some people have come to the conclusion that we will not remember anything of this life. Some people go so far as to say that God is going to wipe our memories as soon as this age is over will enter to the, into the eternal state, not remembering anything. And I just want to tell you that this is not the case. They would say, they would take that verse as a, for a proof text that we read last time, Isaiah 65 17, where God said, For behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And they take that as as kind of a proof text to say, see, we're not going to remember anything of the old life. But listen, the Bible also says that God remembers our sin no more, and yet that does not mean he forgets them. He is omniscient. He knows everything. He cannot forget anything. And so that does not mean we are going to forget those people that we cared about on this earth that have gone to eternal punishment. So we're not going to have our minds wiped and forget everything. Rather, we are going to have our minds sanctified. We're going to have our minds completely sanctified, that we're going to have the mind of Christ and be able to think rightly about those things. Listen to how J.I. Packer puts it. He says, God the Father, who has made a way for reconciliation with Christ, and God the Son, our appointed judge who wept over Jerusalem. So, God the Father and God the Son will, in a final judgment, express wrath and administer justice against rebellious humans. God's holy righteousness will hereby be revealed. God will be doing the right thing, vindicating himself at last against all who have defiled him. God will judge justly, and all angels, saints, and martyrs will praise him for it. And a cross-reference for that is Revelation 19, 1-3, where God is pouring his wrath out on Babylon in the tribulation. And people are in anguish, gnawing their tongues, and the people in heaven are worshiping and singing hallelujah to God on the throne because he is acting justly towards the rebels and the unbelievers. Packer goes on and he says, So it would seem inescapable that we, along with all these other people, it seems inescapable that we shall approve... The judgment of persons, rebels, whom we have known and loved. So we're going not to have our minds wiped, but we're going to have the mind of Christ, which keeps our emotions in perfect check, in perfect uh, continuity with the truth that God is just for punishing sinners. That God is just for punishing sinners, and this will only cause us to rejoice more that we are not enduring the same punishment. Jonathan Edwards puts it this way. He actually believes that the parable that Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus will be an accurate depiction of heaven where people suffering can see people who are in paradise and vice versa. And I don't I don't necessarily interpret that parable that way. That's not the point of the parable. But I think what he has to say about the mindset of believers in heaven is important. This is how we will think when we're in heaven, whether we see these people or not. And so this is what Jonathan Edwards says, and I quote, When the saints in glory shall see the doleful state of those condemned, how will this happen? Heighten their sense of blessedness of their own state, so exceedingly different from it. What he's saying there is how can people in heaven, how can we in heaven look upon the state of those condemned? And how will this heighten our sense of blessedness? How will this make us rejoice even more? He goes on and he says, They shall see the dreadful miseries of those condemned and consider that they deserved the same misery and that it was sovereign grace and nothing else which made them so much different from those condemned. Whether we are able to see those who are suffering or not, we will stand in heaven and praise God that we do not have the same end that they did and it was nothing we had done. It was nothing that we did but only by the saving grace of Jesus Christ that we are there and not in an eternal punishment. And we will rejoice for all eternity in that fact. We will praise Christ forever before his throne that he saved us even though he did not save everyone else. And so we will not have our minds wiped, beloved. If, if we entered into the eternal state and he wiped our memory of everything, it really would have been all for nothing. The only reason, Romans 8, 28 and 29 says, God does all things for his glory and the good of those who love him. And that includes the sin and curse And if God wiped our memories as we entered into the eternal state, then all of those who perished, the sin and the curse, and everything we're enduring right now was really for nothing. But instead, we will stand and praise Christ for all eternity for what he has done for us. We will have the mind of Christ, our emotions and feelings in perfect alignment And we will understand our blessed state is undeserved and those who are in hell deserve what they are undergoing. So in negative terms, John tells us what eternal life will be like. There's no more crying over sin. There's no more weeping over sin. No more death. No more mourning. No more crying out for deliverance. For the former things have passed away. That's the same phrase used of the entire created order we looked at last week, the verse 1. The first heaven and first earth passed away. It's gone. It is out of existence in the new heaven and the new earth. This, beloved, is what eternal life with God is. And that brings us to verse 5. Where there's another declaration here, really to give us certainty that these things will take place. How can we be certain that what John is writing here is going to take place? And I think he comforts us here and gives us extra certainty. So verse 5 through 6a is the certainty of the new heaven and the new earth. Where it reads... And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. John recorded these words, and I think they are for our uh, encouragement so that we might know these things are absolutely true certain. Just to start off, it says, and he who was seated on the throne. last week, I indicated as I was looking forward, I thought that this might be a reference to the Son speaking. But after studying this more and reading more on this this week, and looking at this verse, this verse, it has to be the Father speaking, because look at the end of verse 7 says, I will be his God and he will be my son. Only the father speaks in these terms. And while it's uncertain who's speaking in verse three, we can be certain in verse five that it is the father who is speaking. He addresses us as sons. And this is what the father declares. Behold, That same attention grabber we talked about last week, look at this, pay attention to this, this is what's important, I am making all things new. It's a present tense. As the speaker in verse 3 has just declared, God is going to do this, God is going to do this, this is what will be, this is what will not be, God says Behold, I am making all things new. All that was declared that God would do here, he is saying, I am doing it. All things are being made new right here. Right here. We can be certain that what was said about the Father, he is going to accomplish. And there's a bit of an interjection here where it says, also he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And it's an odd interjection, but I think it's important. We don't know if there's a change in the speaker. Some people think that this is an angel interjecting. I don't know if we can be certain of that. But at the beginning of Revelation, there was an angel that told John, write down everything you see and hear. And one commentator sees a scene in heaven where John he imagines the scene in heaven where John sees the Father speaking. John sees the Father speaking, and he's so taken aback by the Father on the throne speaking that he kind of he stops writing. And one author thinks that it's the angel here nudging John, hey, don't forget to keep writing. He's so taken aback by the Father speaking that he stops writing, and the angel has to remind him here to keep writing. I don't know if that's the case or not, but what the, what the speaker here says is of great importance for our studies uh, going forward, especially into next week. What he says is, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Trustworthy there, especially when it's talking about God or God's word, describes, describes something that we can have absolute confidence in. So here, the speaker tells John to write these things down because you can have absolute confidence that this is going to happen. He also says they are true. That is to say that these words that John is about to hear are in accordance with fact and reality. These words depict a true reality. Now, why is that so important? Well, if you look down to chapter 22, verse 6, there's an identical phrase. Chapter 22, verse 6, and he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. There's an identical phrase there. And I think why this is important, that we look at the fact that these words are in accordance with reality and we can have full confidence that they will happen, is that there are so many people, and I'll quote to you next week, so many people that take what is between these two declarations, that these words are trustworthy and true and in accordance with reality, they take those and they translate them metaphorically. They don't take them literally. And I think there is an emphasis here that these words, we ought to take them literally and we ought to take them in accordance with Reality. And that will be more important as we come to next week, but even right here in the next point. So, we can have absolute confidence that the Father is going to do all that was said about him. After we're told that these words are trustworthy and true, again it says, And he said to me, verse 6, It is done. This is not the same word Jesus used on the cross. This is not the it is finished phrase from Jesus on the cross. This word can be used to refer to someone coming into being, someone being born. It can refer to a change in nature, indicating a new condition, like someone becoming a believer or Judas becoming a traitor. And the list could go on. This word is used extensively throughout Scripture with so many different, such a wide range of meaning. But other places that this word is used with the same tense is in Matthew 122, where Matthew is quoting Scripture and he says, All these things have taken place, that's the word there, have taken place in order to fulfill Scripture It's in the perfect tense, which means it emphasizes past action with ongoing results. We might translate this, they have come about or they have happened. It is done. All the things that were spoken that the Father would do, the Father says, I am making all things new. And then immediately after that, he declares that it's all done. It's all done. And we, as we look forward to this with the declaration that these are trustworthy and true, we can have absolute certainty that what is recorded in these verses will literally take place. And when God declares something in Scripture, as He has here, we can be absolutely certain that it is already done. In the mind of God, all that He has declared from eternity past is already Done. He exists outside of time and space, and therefore, when he declares something to be done, it is done. It doesn't matter that this is a 2,000 year old record of what John saw that is still future for us. It is done because it is done in the mind of God. So, beloved, we can have absolute confidence that this is our future at least for those who are going to be citizens of the new heaven and the new earth. And that's the next point. 6b through 7, the citizens of the new heaven and the new earth. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. So who's going to be a citizen of the new heaven and the new earth? Well, the father declares first that to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Think of once again, the Beatitudes. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. Think of John 4:14, 4, where Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well, the one who drinks of the water I give will never thirst again. And as we look at next week, we're going to see in the New Jerusalem, there is a spring of water of life that flows forward from the throne to produce a river. And this river produces a tree of life on both sides. But what John tells us here, or what, the, what John records here, is the Father saying, to the thirsty I will give from this spring of the water of life without payment. He's going to give freely freely of this water of the spring that imparts life. Dr. Robert Thomas, who was John MacArthur's Greek teacher, wrote a very good commentary on Revelation. And he says this about this river or the spring of water. He says, Unlimited access to this life-giving water will assure residents of the new Jerusalem of an everlasting enjoyment of life. And here, I believe this is a literal spring with a literal river of water that flows out from the throne in heaven. Many people even translate this in a metaphorical sense but I believe there is a literal river with literal water that will sustain people in eternity. And this is kind of a foreign concept to us because we just assume that God will go into eternity and we won't ever eat anything, we won't ever drink anything, and God's going to sustain us. Well, listen, even now, here on this earth, Colossians 1.17, Hebrews 1.3, even now on this earth, God is the one who sustains our life. He holds us together. He keeps everything in motion. And the means by which he sustains us in this life is food and water. And even as we look back into the Garden of Eden, he sustained Adam and Eve's immortal life with the tree of life. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden and God had to put an angel there to guard it to keep them from going back in and eating of the tree of life and living forever. And we look at that and oftentimes we're confused. But listen, I think it's going to be very similar in heaven that God is going to have the water of life and the tree of life and those will still be the means by which he sustains our life. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, he's going to sustain our life by means of the things he gives us. The only difference between now and then is that all those who are citizens, all those who live there, they will have free access to this river that never dries up. They will have free access without payment free access to drink of the water of life, eat of the tree of life. There will be no lack. There will be no shortcoming. We will have all we need in the new earth. There will be no more curse. There will be no more death. God will sustain us, yes. But he may be doing that by means of literal water, and food, even in heaven, just like he did with Adam and Eve. So to the thirsty, he says, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment, or I will give freely. We never have to worry about not having what we need in heaven. And if you've ever been uh, in a state where you've worried about where your next meal might come from. The only time I have, that thought has ever entered my mind was in, when we were in California at the beginning of this coronavirus and there, were n- there was no food on the shelves. That's the first time in my life I ever had to think about what if I can't get food. Much of the world lives like that every day. And they would understand this far better than we do We never have to worry. We will never lack anything we need. We'll have free access to all that we need. He goes on to say in verse 7, those who will be citizens of the new earth are the one who conquers. And John uses that phrase at the beginning of Revelation when he's addressing every church. He He always gives them Something at the end, he says, the one who conquers will receive this. The one who conquers will receive this. And it's just various aspects of eternal life. And so the one who conquers is the one who remains faithful until the end. The one who remains faithful until the end will have this heritage. What heritage is that? Some translations use the word inheritance. What inheritance will we have? I think it's a direct reference to what came right before it. Free access to God, the source of all life, and all the benefits that flow out thereof. We will inherit an abundance of all we need in God himself and all the provisions we would ever need. This, just stop and think about this as an inheritance. Maybe you've received an inheritance from someone in your family. Maybe you are trying to be wise, as the Proverbs say, and you're storing up that you might give your children's children an inheritance. But we want to stop and consider this here. This is going to be our inheritance, eternal life with God, where there is no death, no pain, no mourning. And we ought to think about this. We ought to think about this life and how fleeting it is and all that we do in this life especially as Americans, all the things that we want to buy, all the things we might want to do, all the things we might want to give our children, this is the greatest possible thing we could pass on to our kids. We need to consider whether we are giving our lives, especially as Americans, to materialism, giving our lives to too much of this earth, spending our lives on this life or leaving inheritance from this life to our children. And we need to look to this as the supreme inheritance anyone could ever receive. We ought to take great care to impart these words to our children that this might be their Inheritance. We can't save our children, but we sure can teach them God's word. We can teach them that this inheritance will be theirs if they believe and make Christ the Lord of their life. What are you trying to leave your children? What are you looking forward to as the greatest inheritance? I mean, imagine you get your dream job. You get your dream job and you decide to sell your house. You're going to move, let's just, wherever you thought of as paradise, you're going to move there. Let's just say Hawaii. You're going to move to Hawaii. So you sell your job, you sell your house, you sell everything you own, and you're on your way to Hawaii and you have, for your plane trip, you have a layover in Los Angeles. And your plane lands and you get stuck there for a couple days and the airline's not going to put you up in a hotel, so you're just going to sleep in the airport. You go and you buy the provisions that you need. You get a blanket from one of the stores, some food, a pillow, so you can sleep on those terrible airport chairs or the floor. And you get delayed another day. And you've bought the things that you need. You could get by, but you start thinking, well, maybe, maybe I ought to buy a house while I'm here. Maybe I ought to buy a car so I can go see a few things. Listen, this life is but a very, very, very short layover to our final destination. I mean, we rightly laugh. That would be absolutely ludicrous to buy a house while you're there for a couple days. And yet, how many material possessions do we think we need to store up on this earth when we really don't need them? We have something waiting for us that's far greater and we ought to keep that in the forefront of our minds as we live our life, the things that we buy, the things that we are to steward well. That is the inheritance that we ought to focus on more than in this life. Yes, we have to be wise, leave our children's children things. We don't want to leave them shorthanded. And yet, we have something far greater that we ought to focus on. He goes on and he says, And I will be his God, and he will be my son. Just drawing us back to verse 3. God will be with us on only something greater. Not only are we going to dwell with God, but God will make us his sons. We will live with God, not just as co-dwellers with him, but we will be in the absolute highest position imaginable. We'll be children of God himself, dwelling in his presence. Just as I mentioned last week, like a, a deplorable, a, a uh, untouchable, rather, from India, being brought into a royal house, cleaned up, treated as a son, adopted. It is unfathomable. That, that would happen, and yet that is what will happen with us. So we ought to read these verses and rejoice, beloved, in our future. The things of this earth ought to fade away. Our affections for this earth ought to fade away as we read this and we see what is awaiting us. And we ought to rejoice in that. But, verse 8, goes on to say, and the final point, verse 8, the outcasts of the new heaven and the new earth. The outcasts of the new heaven and the new earth. We will enjoy an eternal bliss with God as our Father, and we will be His sons, but, verse 8 says, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Here we see the terrible end for those who have not trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. John, you see, when when this is actually happening here, All those people have already been judged and sent to hell. This, beloved, is here for us. That we might have at the forefront of our minds that we have a glorious inheritance waiting for us. But all those perishing, those who do not know Christ, this is their end. It's put here that we might be reminded of this because now there is still time for them. We ought to keep that in mind and give our lives to our mission. Making disciples, not collecting material things and giving, collecting an inheritance for this life, but keeping the chief end in mind, and that is the Great Commission that others might be gathered together in to worship God for all eternity. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, there is still time for you yet. When these words, and they will be spoken again for us to hear, when these words are spoken in time for us, it will be too late for you. But right now, it is not too late. You can still forsake your sin. You can still put your faith in Christ and believe in him that all these words are sure as what has happened in the past. And that one day you will meet a fiery end. Look at that, the description of their inheritance it will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. This is the same lake that is mentioned in Revelation 19:20. a thousand years before the beast and the false prophet were thrown into the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. And what's important here is this is present tense. The lake that is still burning with fire and sulfur a thousand years later. A thousand years later, the beast and the false prophet will still be there in the lake that is burning with fire and sulfur. And if you have not put faith in Christ, that is your end, a fiery end of eternal torment. Forsake your sin now. Nothing in this life will bring you enjoyment like we will enjoy in heaven with God himself. Forsake your sin now and turn to him in faith or this will be your end. So for you who continue to reject Christ, you must know this is your end. Rather than an end without tears, without death, without mourning, you will be at an end where there is only death, only mourning, only crying out, for all eternity. Beloved, let's have compassion on those who are not yet saved. Those people whom we often think of as enemies, maybe they're on the other side of the political spectrum, maybe they're tearing down statues and you're just enraged by that. Beloved, these are blind People following after blind people, they don't know any different. They are not your enemies. Enemies of America are not our enemies. There's only a mission field before us. Let us rejoice in what lies ahead for us in heaven and let us have great compassion on those who do not know him, whom this will be their end. When these words are spoken again, it will be too late, but it is not too late now. Let us keep that in mind as we live every day, especially this week. Keep that in the forefront of your mind. In closing, I just want to read Philippians 3 12, 3, 12 through 4 1. I'm looking forward to when Josh gets here in his series, and I promise I won't ruin anything for you, but just to help us set our minds as we go out today, Philippians 3.12, this is Paul speaking, and he says, not that I have already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray. Father, if we have, forgive us, Lord, for not keeping this at the forefront of our minds all the time, for being distracted by this world and the things of this world. None of us are exempt from that. If anyone is particularly convicted by that, Lord, I pray, as Paul prays here, that we might just set those things behind, all those sins you canceled on the cross in Christ. All of our past sins and future sins have been dealt with in your Son on the cross. Help us not dwell on those things, but make it our aim and our goal that we're going to go forward, thinking about our citizenship in heaven and living in light of that. Help us to keep at the forefront of our minds our mission to make disciples to love you and love others, Lord. Help us to not be like the world who the end is our destruction. Their belly is their God and whose minds are set on earthly things. Help us to not be characterized by having a mind that is set on earthly things, but a mind set on our citizenship in heaven. And Lord, we need this reminder every day. This is why we continue to come back every week and so instill in our hearts again anew, a passion and a desire out of love to obey you as we go out into our workplaces this week, to glorify you in all that we do, to tell others of the glorious home that awaits us, and that they too can trust in a God and a Savior to forgive them of their sins. Do this in our hearts, Lord.